0: Well, I guarantee you this uh, teaching is going to cause questions. As a matter of fact, if you like to engage in questions about the things that you hear, I encourage you to come on Saturday nights. We had a service there on Saturday night in which we engage in questions after the teaching and uh, in an open forum so people can hear what other individuals' thoughts are. And last night was no exception. It caused a lot of questions, Um, a lot of thought process around what is going on here. I'm going to share with you uh, one of my favorite paintings. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm just going to tell you about it. And I'm going to encourage you this, this week or maybe later today to Google it up yourself. Bring up one of Rembrandt's works, one of the works of the masters. Um, some of you might know that I, I was an art major my very first year in college and did a lot of work on studying uh, art history, got really bored with it, switched over into aviation. I switched over into Bible. Um, But anyways, when I was in art, uh, we studied the work of the masters, and uh, Rembrandt was one of my favorites. Rembrandt had taken um, liberty when he recreated some of the paintings around the time of Christ. And he was always historically accurate. He would capture it as authentically as he could with clothing, a whole nine yards. But there was exceptions occasionally when Rembrandt would insert himself into a painting. And this particular one that I'm encouraging you to bring up yourself and study it a little bit is the crucifixion scene. And it's the raising of the cross is what it's called. And what you'll see when you look at Rembrandt's painting, the raising of the cross, if you study it very closely and look in the center of the painting, you'll see he put himself as the person lifting the cross into its place. His face is unmistakable. Actually, he put himself in 16th century clothing so everyone would know who it was. Why? Because he saw himself as having been there, as being responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, just like all of us are. Everyone who's ever sinned has responsibility for Christ having to go to the cross. And Rembrandt was just playing it out there, saying, I'm just as guilty as everybody else. We're finding the same thing to be true about these layers when you look closely in the book of John. We've called this study that we're doing The Portrait for a Specific Reason because John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, yet Jesus explained Him. And as we go through layer upon layer and we study the portrait more closely, we see things, details in the center that explain the nature and the character of God. So like Rembrandt, If you study it and you see those details, you understand there's more going on there than just capturing a historical moment. We see here as we study this, layer upon layer of explanation of the complication, the dimensions to who God is. It's a powerful insight for us. So now where we left off last week, the stage has been set for a violent confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. The scribes who have come before him were learning just how bad they really want to kill him, so much so that they're willing to lay a trap for him. Now before we move any further forward, I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 8, and then we're going to pray together before we step into the actual study. So if you can hold your finger there, go to John chapter 8, it's where we're going to be picking up this morning. It's the story of a woman who's been caught in adultery, and she's brought before Jesus, and she's about to be stoned, and they're asking for his position on it. This teaching will be specifically, uh, especially significant to you if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you're being accused of something and individuals around you want to take shots at you. It'll also be specifically significant for you if you found yourself in the situation where you're the accuser and you found someone behaving improperly And you want to deal with it. Jesus deals with both sides of the issue this morning. And it's tough stuff. I'll just tell you up front. But before we step into it, we're going to ask God to work through us so that His Spirit guides us. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before You with hearts ready to hear from You. We thank You for the truth that was shared in the readings that Michael did this morning. And for the truth in the songs I thank you that you've prepared our hearts. But I ask God that you would do something right now that can't possibly happen of our own strength. And that is that we would understand this text in the way that you intend it to be understood. And that has to happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. So, God, I ask that your spirit would not only be present here, but the invasion of your spirit would be felt by everyone. I know that you're here, Father. I felt Your presence the moment I walked into the auditorium. You were ready for Your people to hear from You. So God, I ask that You would speak through Your Word. Bring conviction where conviction is necessary. Bring correction where correction is necessary. And God, where we need to learn to express forgiveness, I ask that You would show us how to be like Christ and express forgiveness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the setting for where we're at in John chapter 8. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's where we left off last week. It takes place over a period of time. We said that the Feast of Tabernacles is like seven Super Bowls stacked on top of each other or seven days of thanksgiving. Huge celebration for these individuals at this period of time. And this is one of the last days of the Feast, if not the last day that we're picking up on here this morning. Word has quickly spread that Jesus is in the temple. And he's not just in the temple, he's in the courtyard proper surrounding the temple. And word has spread so quickly that people are flocking in to hear him teach, openly teaching in an area where he's not supposed to be. He's in the temple courtyard, not just in any courtyard, he's in the court of the women. Now here's what you need to know about that. There was an outer courtyard that surrounded the temple, massive area, and that outer courtyard was where everybody could come, Gentiles and Jews. Inner courtyard was called the Court of Women, where only Jewish men and Jewish women could gather. And the next layer inside of that was the Court of Men, where only Jewish men could go. But Jesus is in the Court of Women. So there's Jewish men and Jewish women present. And here's something remarkable about the Court of Women. That's where the treasury is kept. And what we know from archaeology is that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court's chambers, We're right outside the treasury. So we understand that Jesus is outside the Supreme Court chambers and He can be heard by the Sanhedrin who's in session. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen. John 8.20 says this, These words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple. In the treasury meaning the area where they stacked these offering boxes. Like we have offering boxes on the wall. They had offering boxes on the ground. There were 13 of them. And each one represented a different cause. You could give to the widows. You could give to the paupers. That's what they represented. And they could choose which one they wanted to put their money into. That's where Jesus is at. In the immediate proximity of where the Supreme Court is at, Jesus is outside with a booming voice. If anyone's thirsty, come to me. I'm the living water. They're inside the chambers in hushed tones. You can almost hear them plotting to kill Jesus they hate him so much they're willing to lay a trap for him it's one thing to hate somebody it's another thing to hate someone you want to kill it's a third level to say I not only hate them and want to kill them I'm willing to frame them to bring it about and they're working with other individuals to make this happen so that's where we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 8 and verse 2. This is what it says. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach. So we get this wide angle shot first. John comes over the wall of the temple. It's dawn and there's Jesus, typical rabbi fashion, sitting down teaching this huge crowd that's gathered around him. All the people that are coming to him. And the Sanhedrin, we find out in verse 3, is present. Now, know this about the Supreme Court at this period of time. They didn't exactly get up early in the morning unless they had to. And so these individuals are rising early in the morning, so there's something significant going on. Verse 3 says this, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. So suddenly the teaching is interrupted. Jesus has got his crowd around him. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they burst on the scene. Who are the scribes? They're the lawyers. They're the individuals who know law inside and out, forward and backwards. You want to know anything about the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, all the laws that went with it? These are your guys. They know everything about it. And they're bringing this woman. Now we see the word brought and we think in our English language, there's probably something significant about that when we see an asterisk next to it. Well, let's understand what's going on here because they're not just gently guiding the accused into the courtroom. Let's see the word brought on the screen. It's agao. This word means to drive. So think in terms of when a cattleman has a prod in his hand and drives the cattle forward. She's being driven by these individuals into this setting in the midst of the courtyard where the Jewish men and women have gathered to hear the rabbi teach, she's now thrown into the center of the setting, and she's being brought before Jesus. Now let me say something. I'm just going to sidestep here for a minute and talk about the Bible's view on adultery. You step back to the Old Testament, and you find God is very clear on the issue of adultery and what He wants His people to do in response to it. Under the law, specifically God said, wickedness of adultery is so severe, it cannot be overstated. It's grievous in nature. It's a betrayal of a relationship. And it's considered so severe that in the Old Testament, individuals were allowed to carry out capital punishment, death penalty, if someone committed adultery. Execution was permitted. As a matter of fact, it was taken so severely that if a young woman was engaged to a young man and she was found to be committing adultery outside of the relationship of the betrothal to this young man, she could be killed and would therefore be taken to her father's house and killed on the steps of her father's home as he witnessed it because the dad had responsibility over the daughter. And the crime was so severe against the community and against God, they wanted to make an example to the entire community. So that's how seriously these individuals took this situation. So if you wanted to set up Jesus with a volatile situation in which everybody was supercharged with emotion, this is the perfect plan, the ultimate setting. It's public. It's calculated. His followers are surrounding him. And they're going to try and humiliate Jesus and discredit him in a public forum. So go forward to verse 3. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. And the manner in which they handle this is really brutal. You might even say vicious. The word that's used here to set her in the center of the court is histame. It literally means they chose the place to put her down and put her in the middle of the court. So I'm sure we're picturing here a young woman who is terrified for her life, probably shivering just from the adrenaline, knowing what Jewish scribes and Pharisees do with someone who's caught in adultery. And they interrupt Jesus' teaching and shove her into the setting just to humiliate her And they say, she's been caught. Not only caught, she's been caught in the very act, which means they were staking it out. So the guilt is indisputable. She's been caught in the very act. Go forward to verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? So they're forcing their way into the group. It's dawn, and they pose a question creating an impossible dilemma for Jesus. Why is this so impossible? Because they're saying, what then do you say we should do with her? They're demanding a ruling. They want a verdict. She's guilty under the Mosaic law. She's to be condemned. What's your position on this? Now why? You've got to stop and ask yourself, why are they asking Jesus in the first place? She's guilty. They're supposed to take her before the Supreme Court, before the Sanhedrin. Why would they bring her to a rabbi? It sounds like a setup, doesn't it? This is an open and shut case. Jesus is not a member of the Supreme Court. He doesn't have a responsibility to give a ruling. Why are they asking him? There's no legal difficulty. Do you smell set up in the air? Wow, this is a ripe environment. Now Jesus has already taken a position on adultery. He made himself very clear. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Matthew, you know that Jesus spoke both to the action of adultery and to the attitude that conceives it. He understands exactly what's going on here. He's taken a position. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So set aside the grace and mercy component from a purely legal standpoint, they're correct. She deserves to die under the Mosaic law. It's one of the big ten. The seventh commandment under the ten commandments. God said this on the screens, Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus goes further. It specifies the death penalty. Leviticus 20.10, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And then they are told how to carry it out. Deuteronomy 22.24, You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. So the Old Testament law is very specific. Before the time of grace entered under Christ, the Old Testament law was very legalistic about how this was to be carried out. So if Jesus refuses to confirm the death penalty, he's contradicting God. And they can bring charges against him. Now the obvious question is this, if we're just going to step aside for a moment, in the midst of all this going on, you've got to say, where's the guy? Okay? We don't see anything of him. Now, this kind of sin by its very nature involves two people. The Pharisees are only accusing the woman. Where's the guy in the midst of this setting? It seems very suspicious that he went free, does it not? Okay, so we'll set that aside for just a minute. John now steps in to tell us why all this is going on. Go with me to verse 6. They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So we're told that they're testing him so the motive is really obvious They're using this woman to trap Jesus. Matter of fact, here's the word that's used, periazzo, and it literally means to scrutinize someone. Scrutinizing where he stands, they want to use him so that they can tempt him, according to the definition, into making some type of a declaration. This is all a setup. So number one, if he refuses to confirm the death penalty, they're going to charge him with contradicting God and God's law or, if he agrees to the death penalty, his reputation is ruined because he's the one who's been saying sinners need forgiveness. They need grace and mercy. Matter of fact, Jesus is well known for this statement when he was at dinner with a whole bunch of people who were living a really vile life and the Pharisees saw him. They're looking through the window and saying, what's he doing at a beer party? Why is he there? I mean, the room is filled with smoke and playing poker. Why is Jesus in that room? Jesus' response, look on the screen with me. Matthew nine twelve. when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, for us, this entire scenario raises a much deeper question. Jesus has to deal with the significance of this moment. Does he support Old Testament law and the legalism of it? Or does he express forgiveness and mercy? For us, we have to look at this and say, wait, God, Old Testament law, very clear, punish the sinner. God, New Testament law, forgive the sinner. How do you balance the two? Same God. So how does God forgive sinners without violating His own holy law? How does that work? Well, first of all, we know God's holy, right? Okay, this is participatory. We know God's holy, right? Okay, yes, God's holy. That's what His Word says, Leviticus 11. I am holy, so you should be holy. And we know His law is holy according to Romans The Old Testament law, very clear. God said it's also holy. These are in points number 9, 10, 11, and 12 in in your notes this morning so that you can tuck that in your Bible. You'll want to share this with other individuals later yourself because a lot of people struggle with this. The law knows nothing of forgiveness. The Old Testament law was very strict. No mercy within the law. You sin, you pay the price. So we've got the law that carries out this very specific no-forgiveness policy. And we're told according to Romans 3.20 that the soul who sins will die. But we're also told this in Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Meaning you can't carry out the law and be justified. It's not going to happen. But for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There's the purpose of the law, to reveal God's standard, God's holiness. So we've got this question, how does God forgive sinners yet without violating his own holy law? The answer, through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. That's the only way. Let me show you on screen through these two verses, Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So, you, myself included, all of us, we put our faith in Him, and we are justified. Why? First Peter 2.24, because He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So we find this answer to this question. How does God forgive sinners without violating his own law? Holy law? Jesus, the perfect sacrifice? Mercy and law brought together. Perfection, justice, and mercy are harmonized in Christ. Okay, let's step back to our story now with that in mind. Now, if you were playing chess at this moment, and that's what these individuals are doing, they're playing chess with Jesus. They're saying, check. We've got him in a checkmate position. So they would say, check. Perfect setup. The woman has been humiliated. Her sin has been publicly exposed. She's terrified. No doubt the room is absolutely silent. You could hear the proverbial pin drop. Everyone's waiting for Jesus' response. What's it gonna be? I love this moment because it just hangs there when he decides to say nothing and he goes to the ground and begins writing in the sand. He begins using his finger to etch something out. So Jesus stoops down, he wrote on the ground and the text doesn't tell us what he wrote. So I can't tell you, sorry. There's been a lot of speculation. Some people say that he wrote out the seventh commandment. Others say that he wrote out the sins of those who were about to stone this woman. But imagine this with me, if you will. You've got in front of them the creator of the universe. They think they're in charge, and the creator of the universe kneels down and with his finger begins cutting out words in the same way that the God of the Old Testament repeated what he did to Moses with the Ten Commandments. They're trying to test her on the Ten Commandments and bring her up on trial, and the God of the universe begins etching something out with his finger again. We see that in Scripture. God wrote the commandments with his own fingers. So move with me on to verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. So you know you've got an eyewitness account and John's watching this and he's seeing Jesus come up off his knees and you know he's piercing them with a stare right into their eyes. This is the same crowd who only a few months later is going to bring accusations against him and call for his death. Their hearts are pounding. Finally, we've got this guy. We've got him in a corner and he can't get out. Check. What's he possibly going to do? How can he respond to this? He's about to help some hypocrites condemn themselves. Let's look at God's wisdom. Verse 7 again, the last part of it. And said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Do you know that only your God speaks like that? You see, we're very familiar with that statement, especially if you grew up in church. You hear it used in secular society all the time. But 2,000 years ago, no one had ever said that before. You're seeing the wisdom of God on display. We marvel when we look at Solomon and we say, wow, Solomon was so wise. Well, guess where he got his wisdom from? Look at that statement. With one sentence, he put all of the blame back on them. All of the responsibility, all of the dilemma. Here's why. Under Jewish law, it was required that if a capital punishment was to be carried out, there had to be two eyewitnesses. Two individuals who could step forward who were blameless to bring about the charges. Now normally, this type of offense is done in privacy. So how do they have witnesses? We've got individuals who are staking this out. So Jesus is not disagreeing about her guilt. He knows that she's guilty. There's no argument there. Under the law, there must be two eyewitnesses. So when Jesus requires that the two witnesses who begin the stony action be innocent themselves, what happens? Conviction sets in. They immediately remember Their own life. What they're filled with. Conviction is powerful. With one sentence, God shuts their mouth. Now understand me, church. Jesus is not minimizing the sinful activity that this woman was participating in. Not at all. He's not eliminating it. He's cutting the ground out from under them. Why? Because they are so filled with sin, they are not qualified to be her judge or her executioners It's not possible. That's why the response. So verse nine, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Is that not an interesting insight into human nature? You see who's first to go? The older ones? Why? Well, if you're of a certain age, you have more to remember, don't you? You certainly have more memory bank to remind you of where you've been. So I put this in your notes also. It is ironic to me that those who came to put Jesus to shame themselves have left ashamed. And those who came to condemn have left condemned. Now, here's the thing about laying down your stones if you're one of those that's carrying a stone around with you right now because someone's done something to offend you, laying down the stones begins with the humility of remembering. that Jesus is immediately reminding them, hey, you're not so great yourself, guys. Those of you who don't have any sin, you can go ahead and carry this out. But you better remember where you stand. And they absolutely, obviously do. They've got way more sense than declare themselves righteous so go with me to verse 10. We have an empty room now. Straighten up, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? I love this eyewitness stuff that John's watching. He sees Jesus, so he's relaying it to us. He gets up, and Jesus is left alone with the woman in the center of the court. I'm thinking the disciples are still there. I'm thinking the crowd is probably watching this trying to learn what's going to happen next. Only a moment ago, she's been bait for a trap. And this is the first time someone speaks directly to her. Woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? Mel Gibson, when he produced The Passion of the Christ, captured this moment in a way that no one else could. I want you to see this short clip to realize the intensity of this moment. Let's watch it together. I think I know why Jesus asked her that question. Not the, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? Because of the response of what comes next, I'm looking at that clip this week, and I I captured that photo, and I kept it on my computer because of this. She's me. She's you. She's every one of us who have ever needed the forgiveness of Christ. He's asking that question, did no one condemn you? So that he could make this response next. Verse 11, she said, no, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go From now on, sin no more. Could Jesus have condemned her at that moment? Absolutely. He's the only sinless one. Could he have stoned her at that moment? Certainly. I do not condemn you either. Do you notice that she didn't even ask for forgiveness? She never even asked for mercy. God did not pass judgment on her. What he did do is he commanded her to do what he's told others to do for millennia. Go and sin no more. What's in the past is in the past. Leave it there. But don't carry it into your future. Don't continue in sinful activity. So he said, I do not condemn you, but from now on, don't keep doing this. Don't misinterpret this to mean Jesus is easy on sin. Your king is not easy on sin. The forgiveness of God is free, but it is not cheap. For him to forgive her meant that six months later, he had to go to the cross. The same is true for you. Rembrandt realized that. To experience the forgiveness of Jesus meant he had to go to the cross. That's what you see in that shuddering hand reaching. That woman understood how great was that forgiveness. He saved her life. He saved your life. That's the forgiveness of your God. Now let me send you out this morning with a few observations in your notes if you've got them. I just want to Refer to them real quickly so that you understand the significance of this not continuing on in sin anymore once you've been forgiven. Forgiveness does not imply a license to continue in sin. Jesus didn't condemn her, but he did command her. See, forgiveness demands a clean break with sin, leaving it behind you and saying, no more. In the power of God, I will not continue in this because of this Encountering Jesus has always required life transformation. You can't claim Christ in your life and continue on with the same sinful activity. Look what Paul wrote regarding this, Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Let me take you back to what Michael started with this morning. 1 John 1, this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son Cleanses us from all sin. What a cool portrait of our God this morning. Here's the images. His wisdom. His grace. His mercy. I would call those some serious brush strokes. I hope you made note of that this morning as you take on this week ahead of you. Don't forget these reminders As you encounter people throughout the course of your week, people you need to express forgiveness to, people you need to receive forgiveness from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in which we've been able to examine your word and realize the price that you paid to give us forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for what you've etched in my mind, and I hope for every single person who's been here over the course of this weekend that your mercy knows no limits and your grace knows no boundary. Thank you, God, that you have separated our sins as far as the east is from the west, but that you call us to not continue to walk in sin. Help us, Father, through the work of your Spirit in your life. Call us to that higher place, Father. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you have a great week.